Good morning, church. One, one deal that you have to make with me, when I trip over something, you can't laugh too hard, okay? Um, I, I love you, love you, love this church so much. There are so many good things going on here. Our family Bible experience yesterday and this evening is just one example of some of the good stuff that's going on here. But one of the things, too, that I love about this church family is that you, you're willing to have hard, gospel-centered conversations. You're willing to let the gospel both comfort and convict you. That's one of the things I love about this church family is that the gospel does that if we're willing, doesn't it? It comforts us and it also convicts us. And you're, you're willing to hang with it and listen to the gospel as it both comforts and convicts. I've been thinking a lot about a story that happened to me a few years ago. I've been trying to debate when in this series I would, I would tell this story and how exactly I would tell this story, but it's one that's really dear to my heart. It happened several years ago. I was preaching at a different congregation, and we had this young lady who had been attending worship with us. We were getting to know her. We knew that she was estranged from her husband and that they were experiencing a lot of marriage problems. And I'll never forget the first Sunday that her husband, her estranged husband, started attending with us. I won't forget that Sunday because he came forward with tears just rolling down his cheeks. I could smell the alcohol on his breath. And he just wept as he said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I just want my wife back. And over the next few weeks and probably months, as I got to know him and as we studied together, I saw the Lord working in his life to change him, to transform him, to work in their marriage, to bring them back together. And praise God, he was baptized into Christ. And it was such an exciting moment. And I, I, I shared about his baptism on Facebook which would generally have been a good experience. But my joy turned to frustration really quickly. See, this brother had an Arabic name. And someone in the comment section asked the question as if it was a normal question. Now that he's a Christian, will he change his name? And I was just so frustrated by that question. I wanted to ask, to what? Bob? George? Fred? Wes? Is that a more Christian name than his? You see, that's an explicit example, but this kind of thing has been happening for 2,000 years in the church. Christian people have struggled with this exact thing where we've asked people not only to accept Jesus, not only to accept the cross of Jesus and the way of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and that's hard enough as it is, amen? That's hard enough as it is. But on top of that, we have tried to also attach ethnic baggage, cultural baggage. 
and say to people, not only do you need to be baptized and repent of your sin, but you also need to accept my way of living, my culture, my customs, my traditions. And that happened from the very beginning in the church. One of the very first issues was the issue of circumcision. And there was a group of Christians, there was a group of people in the church that we sometimes refer to as the circumcision party. And they believed that if somebody was going to come from the nations, if somebody was going to come from another ethnic group, then not only did they need to accept Jesus as the Messiah and be baptized, but they also needed to accept some of their cultural traditions and customs, primarily circumcision. And the first time we see this circumcision party, the first time we see this circumcision group in the church is in the church in Jerusalem. We've been talking now for four weeks about the story story of Peter and Cornelius. And now this Roman family has been baptized into Jesus and, and Jews and Gentiles are eating together and fellowshipping with one another and accepting one another as brothers and sisters in the family of Abraham, the family of God. And then Peter gets back to Jerusalem, but not everybody's happy about what's transpired. There's a group of people who are very upset, who are criticizing Peter because Peter had the audacity to eat with uncircumcised people. Look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, was criti- the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, now why why, why was this such a big deal? Why is it that they made such a big deal about Peter eating with uncircumcised people? What is it about circumcision that was so important? Well, it was a, it was a cultural marker, right? It was a marker of identity and belonging, of group identity. And we struggle with this, don't we? We've struggled with this for thousands and thousands of years where we put markers and boundaries and walls on our group and we say, don't step over these lines. And you kind of know when somebody is starting to step over the line because other people start to ask questions like, hey, wait a second, whose side are you on anyway? Or people ask questions like, are you one of us or one of them? And that's why this bothers them so very much. Whose side are you on anyway, Peter? Are you one of us or one of them? This sort of us and them language, this sort of us and them thinking, this way of protecting our culture and our way of life from outside influences and saying, don't step over these lines. And if somebody steps over this line, we're going to treat them like a traitor. And we're going to ask them, are you one of us or one of them? Whose side are you on anyway? And so Peter had to make the case, I'll tell you whose side I'm on. I'm on God's 
side. I'm on the side of Jesus. I'm on the side of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus. It is God who is tearing down these walls and bringing these groups of people together. So, verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance... I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, if you've been with us through this series, or if you were to just sit down and read the book of Acts, you you might get kind of tired of this story, right? Because Luke keeps telling it over and over again. And that's not a very efficient way to write a book, is it? That's not an efficient way to write the book because the audience has already heard this story. The reader has already heard this story. The church has already heard this story. And so Luke could have recorded it this way. Peter told him what happened. And that's it. Peter told him what happened. But instead he goes into detail and he explains it again. Why? Why? Because Peter's priority, or rather Luke's priority, is not efficiency. Luke's priority is repetition for the sake of the glory of God. Repetition for the sake of the church getting this message. Because God knew that for 2,000 years we would continue to struggle with things exactly like this. That there would continue to be Christians who would ask questions like, Whose side are you on anyway? Are you one of us or one of them? Why is it that you don't respect these cultural boundaries like we do? And so Luke, carried along by the Holy Spirit, has to impress upon the church, not just the the church in the first century, but for the readers, not Peter's idea. This was not any man's idea. This was God's idea. And so the story keeps being told over and over and over again in detail through the book of Acts so that we understand this is God's vision. This is God's doing to break down these walls and to bring these people groups together. Verse 7, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. What's Peter saying? Why is Peter telling the Jerusalem church this? Why does he say, and I argued with God. I argued with him. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Because he's saying, up to this point, I continue to make distinctions. Up to this point, I had continued to make distinctions. I had continued to make distinctions between clean and unclean, common and holy. I I continued to make these distinctions until I had this vision. And until I saw this vision, I continued to make these distinctions, not just about foods, but about the people who ate those foods. And Peter said, I I struggled with this. This was my mentality too. And then I had this vision. 
And then, verse 11, And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no, what? Distinction. Making no distinction. Whose idea was it? Was it Peter's idea? No. It was the Spirit's idea. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He's talking about Cornelius. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. What's Peter saying? He's saying, I I would have continued to make distinctions. I would have continued to uphold these walls. I would have continued to distinguish between clean and unclean, common and uncommon. I would have continued to do that, but God forced my hand. God forced me to change my mind. God forced me to make no distinction and to go with these men and to eat with these men and to spend time with these men and eventually to baptize these men into Jesus. The Spirit had this idea. God gave me this vision. And on Cornelius' side, he had seen a vision as well of an angel. And so all of this was was God's doing. The Lord had orchestrated this meaning. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, the word of Jesus, How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know know how I like to talk about the word you, right? Because this is a plural you, which in the South we say y'all, and in Texas we say all y'all, right? So so Jesus had told them, Jesus had told them, y'all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I think what Peter is saying is, in this moment, when he saw Cornelius' household receive the same gift, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles in the same way that it had been poured out on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, This, this sentence came to his mind. This promise from Jesus came to his mind. All y'all, y'all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I think up to this point, the the y'all had been a small y'all. It had been a small group of people. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And and they were thinking, that's us. That's our, our small group. But then when this happened, when they saw the Holy Spirit poured out on Gentiles, they knew they needed a bigger y'all. And sometimes we do too, don't we? Sometimes when we think of you, in the north we would have said, you guys, you guys, y'all, all y'all. When we think of us, who's the us? Who's the us? And who's the them? And up to this point, everybody had been thinking in terms of clean and unclean, circumcised and uncircumcised, Jewish people and the nations, everybody else. But now Jesus was pouring out the Holy Spirit on everybody, on people of every nation. 
And so Peter had to change his mind about who us is. Who is us? Because these people are receiving the Holy Spirit just like we did. Even though they're uncircumcised, even though they don't eat kosher food, even though they don't keep our customs and our traditions, they're not ethnically like us, but God loves them too. And God wants them in his family too. And so the us has to be a whole lot bigger. And we have to stop making these distinctions. Verse 17 If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I love that question, don't you? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, obviously, he's asking that rhetorically, but what could he have done to stand in God's way? He says, it was God's intention to tear down the walls. It was God's intention to bring every ethnic group together. It was God's intention to unite all people in Jesus. Who was I to stand in God's way? Now, he could have stood in God's way actively, right, actively. He could have actively opposed God and said, absolutely not, over my dead body. I'm not going to allow this. I'm going to fight against this. I'm going to force these Gentiles to be circumcised. He could have actively opposed it, but he could have also passively stood in God's way and just said, I'm not going to participate in this. I'm not going to eat with those people. I'm not going to be a part of this. Now, Jesus would have still accomplished his mission, amen? Because God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable, and God's vision to unite all people in Christ is an unstoppable mission. And even if Peter had decided to stand in God's way, actively or passively, Jesus still would have accomplished his about to do that. I wasn't about to stand in God's way. But for 2,000 years, there have been, in the first century up till today, there have been Christians who have stood in God's way. Now, that doesn't mean God's still not going to accomplish his mission because he for sure is. God is unstoppable. Jesus is unstoppable. The Spirit of God is unstoppable. The mission of God is unstoppable. He will complete his mission. He will fulfill his vision. But that hasn't stopped Christians from standing in God's way, both actively, actively opposing, actively opposing the multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic kingdom of God and passively standing in God's way where we just said, that's fine, you know, whatever, but I'm just not going to participate. I'm not going to be a part of that. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to do anything in regards to that. Both actively and passively, people have stood in God's way, but with or without us, God will accomplish his will. Look at verse 18. Thankfully, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now that word repentance, that's that's not a word we like a whole lot, is it? Sometimes we we kind of resist the word repentance, but it's a good word. In fact, here the idea is that that God has gifted it to them. 
God has gifted them repentance. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, is that the Gentiles, they have a whole lot of stuff from from which they need to repent. And then chapter 2, the Jewish people have a whole lot of stuff from which they need to repent. Everyone has a whole lot of stuff from which they need to repent. And God has gifted us with that opportunity. God has gifted the whole world with that opportunity. God has gifted all people with the opportunity to turn from their sin and to come to Jesus. Without adding extra baggage to that. Without standing in God's way, without opposing that, God has given them this gift. God has given you this gift, the opportunity to turn from your sin and come to Jesus and be part of what Jesus is doing in the world. And then it says that they they glorified God because God had granted this gift of repentance to the people. They glorified God. That's, That's the key, church. That's the key. When I, when I look, I can't hardly look out at this crowd without, without praising God because I look out at this crowd and I see what God is doing in you. And then my mind goes to all of, all of God's people across Texas and across the United States and across the world and God's multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic family. And I just want to stop and praise God and glorify him for what he's doing in bringing people together and healing wounds, and reconciling people, and making us part of one family. Yes, yes, sadly, there are people that stand in God's way of that, but God is unstoppable, and God's doing it anyway. God's healing people anyway, and God's forgiving people anyway, and God's reconciling people anyway, that he might be glorified in it. That he might be glorified in it. When we see what God is doing in bringing people together, we glorify God. I I think Ephesians chapter 1, as I said last week, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, they're all about this. This is the topic that Paul is writing about. Listen to Ephesians 1. This could very well be a commentary on what happened with Cornelius. Ephesians 1 verse 9. He said, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will. Chapter 3 says, the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jewish people. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Amen? This is the plan of God, to reconcile everything, to bring everything in heaven and on earth together. And we are the first fruits of that. We are the first fruits of that. We are the people that God is reconciling, that God is reconciling. He's bringing us together and helping us to love each other and to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
He says in verse 12, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. This is why I don't have a choice but to talk about the multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic nature of the kingdom of God is because if I don't, God fails to get our glory and praise. Paul says the purpose of all of this is that God is glorified and that God is praised and that he's bringing people together. He's tearing down walls and he's healing wounds. He's healing wounds. And there's a, there's a lie that I've heard a lot. And you've probably heard this lie too. It goes something like this. Time heals all wounds. And that's a lie, isn't it? Time doesn't heal all wounds. And we know that. We know that a lot of the time, a wound gets infected. And over time, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. And that's true physically. It's also true emotionally and relationally and societally. Wounds don't always get better with time. Time is not the great physician. Jesus is the great physician. Time cannot heal the wounds caused by racism. Time cannot heal the wounds caused by slavery. Time cannot heal the wounds caused by segregation. But Jesus is, and Jesus does, and Jesus will. Jesus is the great physician. Time is not the great physician. Jesus is healing those wounds. And it's amazing. It is amazing to see what God is doing what Jesus is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And he's doing this good work. He's doing this good work through obedient, Spirit-filled people. That when people are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the nations are healed. The nations are healed when we bear the fruit of the Spirit. I'm tired of time getting the credit and the glory for the wounds that Jesus is healing. I am tired of time getting the glory for the wounds that Jesus is healing. If two people or two people groups were at odds with one another and now they're coming back together and loving one another and living at peace with one another, it's not time that's doing that. It's the Spirit of God that's doing it and it's time we give Jesus the credit. It's time we give him the glory. And it's time that we decide, I, I'm not just going to be a spectator in this. I'm going to be a participant in what Jesus is doing. 
I'm not just going to sit back and watch it happen because it is happening. It is happening. Praise God it's happening. Praise God it's happening here at McDermott Road. It's happening across this country. It's happening across the world. God is healing wounds. God is bringing people together. But it's not enough for any of us to sit back and say, well, I'll just be a spectator in that. I'll just watch it happen. I'll just wait for God to do this good work. God's plan of reconciliation doesn't call for spectators, only participants. God has a plan of reconciliation, and he's working his plan. He's accomplishing his plan. He's been accomplishing his plan for 2,000 years in spite of the fact that many have stood in God's way. And he will continue to accomplish his plan until he has reconciled everything in heaven and on earth. But there are consequences for not being participants. And one of the consequences is that we miss out on the joy. We miss out on the joy of being part of what God is doing in the Spirit. It's not enough to say, oh good, I'm glad that's happening. Yes, be glad that it's happening. And give glory and praise to God that it's happening. But also be part of it. By getting to know your neighbors. By getting to know your brothers and sisters. By sharing your life with one another. By bearing each other's burdens. By listening to one another. By forgiving one another. By allowing the Spirit of God to bear fruit in your life. The Spirit's fruit in your life is for the healing of the nations. The Spirit's fruit in your life is for the healing of the nations. And by the nations, I mean your next door neighbor and the person a block over and the people you go to school with and the people you work with. Time does not heal the wounds we've experienced, but the Spirit of God can. And the Spirit of God is, and the Spirit of God will. And he wants to heal those wounds through the fruit the Spirit is producing and your peace and your patience and your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness and your gentleness and your self-control. So that as he heals our wounds, as he reconciles humanity to himself and to one another, he is praised and glorified. We have to be determined, not just I won't stand in God's way, but also I will participate in the reconciling work that he's doing. Maybe the first step for you is for you to be reconciled to God. It's for you to be baptized into Christ, for you to receive his forgiveness, his gift of repentance, his gift of forgiveness, his gift of the Holy Spirit to be reconciled to him and with your brothers and sisters. But then after we come up out of that water, let's go on to walk in and live in newness of life where we're part of the reconciling work that God is doing. And if we can help you with that in any way, now's a great opportunity. After service, you can meet with the shepherds in the prayer room or you can come forward now. As together we stand and sing this song.